0: I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 7 through 12, primarily starting in verse 9 this morning, be looking at uh, a diluting influence that's found in this passage that actually will come from the Lord. It's kind of a challenging passage as we read and uh, we'll look at it together this morning. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 7. Again, our privilege is to read the inspired Word of God. So please uh, pay careful attention to the reading of His Holy Word. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they may believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. May God bless the reading of His Word. So what we have in this passage is there will be a time determined by God when the restrainer will be taken out of the way. The Antichrist will make his long-awaited appearance uh, on the scene of history to deceive the world and the church on a massive scale. That mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But his success now in deceiving the church and bringing about apostasy is partial and limited. False teachers have some success today, but they're not able to deceive the entire church, certainly not the elect of any age. But when the man of lawlessness is revealed, his success will be far-reaching and much more universal than before. In my understanding of this, the Antichrist will be the most Satan possessed man of all human history and will be able to deceive the masses because of his influence. He will be controlled by Satan's character and will unleash his rage against the church. And this is uh, what you can also read in Revelation chapter 12 of the uh, dragon who goes off to make war against the rest of the offspring, those who believe and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The believing church will probably be forced to go underground, similar to what has happened, in, happened previously in the Soviet Union, even now going on in, in China, or they may have to flee like today in Nigeria and Sudan where believers are being hunted down and slaughtered by Islamic forces. The goal of the Antichrist is to bring about a worldwide delusion. And he will fail, of course, because God has him on a short timer, a short leash, if you will. And when his time is up, Christ will return and will utterly destroy him. But sadly, many will follow him. And these are the ones who, in the book of Revelation, who will take the mark of the beast, and they will be followers of this man of lawlessness, or Antichrist, as many refer to him. Again, when Christ does return, history comes to an end, and the eternal state begins, in my understanding of the Word of God. So as we look at this, the passage that we've just read, I want us to... uh, begin by uh, looking at verse 9 and we're going to see the deception of the lawless one. We've kind of already looked at this before, but at least verse 9, but we'll uh, pick it up here and look at how the lawless one is able to deceive so many people. So again, describing this man of lawlessness, Paul writes in verse 9, he's the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, <clears throat> I think Nero Caesar back in the first century was kind of the first fulfillment of the man of lawlessness, but he doesn't fulfill it in its fullness. I think it's still something to come. But notice, he, will, he is coming with the activity of Satan. And the word coming, again, is the very word that's used of Christ's coming. So I think Paul is tipping his hand that this man of lawlessness is going to present himself as the true Christ, the true Savior, the true King. And so he uses the same word of parousia for the coming of the Antichrist as he uses for the coming of Christ. So there's a desire on the top of, uh, in the mind also of the Antichrist, is to imitate Christ, and that's part of how he's going to deceive so many people. Notice also he comes with power and signs and false wonders, and we saw last time in Acts two twenty two the same three words, power, signs, and wonders, are referred to the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the Antichrist is Antichrist. He's a false Christ. He's an imitator of Christ. He's going to deceive people thinking that he's the real Christ. He's the real God. And many will be duped and will follow uh, his deception. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that false teachers can disguise themselves. And he says, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So this is, this is the uh, attempt of the man of lawlessness in this passage, also known as the Antichrist, to come to see people. He's going to claim he's coming as God. He's actually going to be able to do power, signs, and false wonders False, not in the sense that they're fake, but they're they're buttressing of the lie. So they're false in that regard, but they're probably real miracles. And in this sense, he's going to try to imitate uh, God, and specifically Christ. You're familiar with the book of Revelation, how it presents an unholy trinity in contrast to the Holy Trinity. So you have the dragon... You have the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, and those three comprise an unholy trinity. So you can see in their own twisted, demented minds, they, they want to take the place of, the, of our triune God. Of course, they will fail. But he'll try to persuade and convince the population of the world that he's the real Savior, he's the only one who can really bring peace to the world. But before he can do that, he must consolidate his power and reign in the realms of religion and reign in the realms of civil government. And then also remove the threat, the danger, the enemy, and that's Christians. So that's where the great apostasy uh, will begin to take place and persecution of the church. In the book of Revelation, the beast from the sea will make war with the saints And overcome them and have authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. That's Revelation 13, verse 7 and 8. So you can see if this is the same guy, individual, as the man of lawlessness, he's going to have incredible global power. Not only over religion to deceive, but over civil government to punish and afflict And put to death. And of course uh, it says he's going to make war with the saints and overcome them. So it will be a dark time indeed. The beast from the earth will also perform great signs. Even fire from heaven according to Revelation 13. And he will deceive those who dwell on the earth to worship the beast from the sea. And he causes those who do not worship the beast to be killed. And he gives a mark on the right hand and the forehead so that they cannot buy nor sell unless they have the mark of the beast. So this, this would, the way I would understand this, and again there's differing views, is that uh, this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is going to have incredible global power. We go on to read in verse 10 that he will also come with the deception of wickedness. Or wicked deception as the ESV would would, uh, translate it. It's a deception that is wicked. So the Antichrist is going to be a master deceiver. He'll be so convincing with His miracles that the masses are converted to be His followers and disciples. But His deception is wicked. It deceives them into thinking that good is evil and evil is good. And note, even Eve in the Garden of Eden said concerning Satan, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And that's that's going to be the hallmark of this man of lawlessness. He is a deceiver and there'll be a great deception wicked deception so as this is kind of the epitome of the old of the biblical analogy of the wolf and sheep's clothing like jacob who deceives jacob uh isaac excuse me jacob who deceives isaac dressed up like esau with animal skins on his hands and neck to make the deception more believable And all the deceptions in the Bible are ultimately going to be consummated in the deception that comes from this uh, man of lawlessness. And of course, he'll have success except with the elect of God. God will preserve them. Uh, They will not follow the the beast or the antichrist, but they'll remain faithful to Christ and some will pay the price of their faithfulness with their life. So, who are those who will be deceived by this man of lawlessness? So, in verse 10, Paul now begins to pick up this notion of uh, describing those who will actually be deceived by. The Antichrist. So notice he says that uh, with all, verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And the word perish here is a word that's associated with going to hell. So those who are going to be deceived by the miracles and the coming of this man of lawlessness are going to be those who go to hell. They're going to be those who perish. They're unbelievers, unregenerate. They're lost, sinfully dead sinners. They're deceived. They believe the lies of the man of lawlessness. And they'll be executed and judged when Christ comes back. But why will they perish? So he describes them in verse 10 as those who perish. And then he adds to that, they perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So they did not love the Gospel. They did not love the truth. The love of the truth would be, of course, the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of, of this letter. They did not receive it. They did not love it. They didn't want to be saved. They rejected Christ. They, re- they rejected the Gospel. And they're going to perish because of their unbelief. Because of their willful, stubborn Resistance to the Gospel. That's what he's emphasizing. So they are responsible for their own death. They are responsible for perishing because of their sin. And someone once said that behind the great deception is the great rejection. So the great deception that the man of lawlessness will bring will be successful because of the great rejection from the hearts of all these unbelievers that reject the Gospel and reject Christ and therefore they perish. They're going to perish because they have rejected the Gospel. Now, they're, they're going to be easily deceived by the power, signs, and wonders in verse 9. And uh, these miracles are going to convince them that this really is God rather than Satan. Satan is in disguise. He's animating this man of lawlessness. And the miracles are going to convince people that he's the real deal. They walk by sight, not by faith. And many within the confessing church will be deceived too. Those who have a superficial and intellectual faith only, they're like the tares among the wheat that Jesus taught about often that uh, you'll find within the church. They're the false brethren who spies out our liberty as Paul talked about in Galatians. They do not love the truth thus they will not be saved but they will perish. In verse 11 we now Paul now shifts to the deluding influence that also comes from God. And this is kind of an added punishment on those who have already willfully rejected Christ. But notice he starts out in verse 11 for this reason. So now we have to ask ourselves, what reason does Paul have in mind? And I think it's at the end of verse 10. Because of their unbelief. Because of their unwillingness to receive the truth and love the truth for this reason because they have already set their wicked hearts in rebellion against God for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. So basically what we learn from this is that God deludes those who have already been deceived. By their own depravity. God deludes those who have already been deceived. By their own depravity. Note that them in verse 11. For this reason God will send upon them. Again referencing back to verse 10. Those who have already chosen not to receive the love of the truth. So they're the ones that will be deceived and upon them, God will send this deluding influence. This is somewhat of a frightening truth, actually, if you think about it. That those who willfully reject the truth, God will send a deluding influence upon them. To the depraved, He will judge them so they become more depraved. To the hard-hearted, He will judge them so they become more hard-hearted. This deluding influence that's referenced here in verse 11 can be translated differently. Some of your Bibles may have a powerful delusion or maybe a strong delusion, but it's a deluding power is really the, the idea of the word. This word is the same as used for the activity of Satan in verse 9. It's the very same word. It's, a, it's an influence. It's an activity that God will actually bring upon these people. So it will be a powerful working influence that will delude those who are already deceived and hardened in their hearts to further believe Antichrist's lies that He is God. They're going to believe what is false. So those who harden themselves will suffer the penalty of being hardened by God. Now there's a theological problem obviously here because how can God, who is good and just, send them A powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. I mean, we know clearly that God is not the author of sin, yet God has every right to justly punish sin. And that's really what He's doing in this context. He is punishing sinners. Uh, If you look at some of the theologians and how they explain this, For example Calvin says for as God enlightens us inwardly by his spirit that his doctrine may be efficacious in us so by a righteous judgment he delivers over to a reprobate mind those whom he has appointed to destruction that they may as if bewitched deliver themselves over to Satan and to his ministers to be deceived. So God does this righteously. He does it as a holy judgment upon sinners. And God has the right to judge sinners. He has the right to punish sin because He is just. He is holy. So I think Calvin is certainly right there. Matthew Henry says, God is just when He He inflicts spiritual judgments here and eternal punishments hereafter upon those who have no love to the truths of the gospel. So again, God can judge sin now just like He's going to judge sin in the future. So He has every right to do that. Greg Bill, professor at the Theological, Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas, said God righteously sends delusion because it is the beginning part of His just judgment. And I think all three of those uh, help to explain that God can be righteous and still send a delusion. Now it's interesting, now He may use means in doing that. Uh, But if you look at the curses of the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament, Uh, Some of the language here is just uh, astounding. Because God will send every kind of plague and disease and suffering and misery upon the Jewish nation if they rebel and disobey God. And He has every right to do that. He's God. And He's just and holy. In Deuteronomy 28 verse 20, He says, The Lord will send upon you curses confusion and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you're destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. So the Lord will send. This is more of an action. All these curses and confusions upon them. Verse 28. The Lord will smite you with madness with blindness, with bewilderment of heart for their disobedience. Verse 65, The Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. The Lord will give that to them as a righteous punishment for their unbelief and their rebellion and their sin. So God, as a holy God, a just God, a God who cannot sin, and is not the author of sin, can still justly do this to sinners. Now, when he does that, sometimes he just withdraws his grace, like in Romans 1. He gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He gave them over to degrading passions. That would be homosexuality within the context. God gave them over to a depraved mind. He just lets their own innate natural depravity just take control. And He pulls off all the brakes, all the restraint, and He just withdraws His grace. But there's other scriptures that describe God as being more active than just passively withdrawing His, his grace. As we saw in the curses, He's sending them. At least the language is, is very active even though God maybe used means in doing that, but he's, he's very much active in that. Just some of the verses, if you look at, uh, I think for example, I think I skipped one. There. In Job, remember, in Job chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Who initiated all this? God did. God's sovereign over all these things. And he went on to say to Satan, uh, For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And then after some conversation, then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So God is sovereign in control. He initiates... He calls Satan over. Have you considered my servant Job? And then he puts the limits on what he can do. God is sovereignly in control, but he initiates this. So that would be an example where God is using Satan to bring these kinds of trials into the life of of his servant. Another interesting one is 1 Samuel 16 verse 14. Where it says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So again, God in his holiness and justice and sovereignty is utilizing an evil spirit to accomplish his will and bring judgment upon Saul for his sin. And notice the evil spirit came from the Lord. This is even more dramatically expressed in 1 Kings 22 when the great prophet Micaiah came to King Ahab and gave him this message. Remember, all of his false prophets were saying, go to war, go to war, you'll have success. And Micaiah came as a true prophet and he said this to King Ahab, the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? God initiates it. God is sovereign. He's in control. And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail, go and do so. So God gave him permission. God set the limits. God initiated it. God is in control. He has the right to judge and punish this wicked, evil king because of his sin. So what's interesting is whether or not it says that God will send a deluding influence is that Deluding influence, the Antichrist himself. With all the miracles, is he the deluding influence? Some might take that view, but notice verse 11 says, For this reason, the people have already been deceived by the miracles of the Antichrist. And then Paul says, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. So it's like another layer of judgment upon their hardened hearts. They've already hardened their hearts. They've already rejected the gospel. But now the Lord's going to punish them further and afflict them because of their sin. And again, he has the right to harden hearts. The result is going to be they're going to believe what is false. Well, they have they have already rejected the truth. So what does Paul say here that they will they will believe what is false? And my my thinking is is that since they've already rejected the gospel. They don't love the truth already to be saved. They rejected Christ. Then when Paul here says they will believe what is false, I think it's just saying that their spiritual blindness of their minds and souls will become thicker and darker and more resistant to the light. It's just a further hardening. Like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart after he had already hardened his heart. It's just an additional judgment. These again are very sobering words, and there's a warning here, is there not? For those who think that they will come to Christ later in life, people who think that, well, you know, I understand I need Christ, I understand I'm a sinner. And I'll even go to church and engage in certain things, but I really won't follow the Lord. I really won't commit myself to Christ till later on in life. Don't you realize the folly of that? Because every day we resist repenting and believing in Jesus Christ and receiving Him as our Lord and Savior you are hardening your heart more and more every day. You think, well, sometime in the future I'll do it. It will be more difficult in the future. You don't want to do it today. You won't want to do it then. Because every day you harden your heart. And sadly, it may come to a time when we've hardened our our own hearts that God just says, I'm done. And He unleashes his wrath and His judgment upon us and, and you're damned, you're doomed. There, there's no way. Your own sinful heart has already put you in that condition, but God just adds another layer of hardness. And a lot of people don't reckon, recognize that. You think you can delay, but you're just giving your unbelief more time to grow bigger, stronger, and Harder. It's like the dripping of the water inside the cave. That water full of minerals and it drips on the floor of the cave. And it initially is just water on the floor, but the minerals begin to harden, they begin to set, and the dripping that continues to fall in that same place begins to form a stone, a stalagmite And the more it drips, the bigger and harder that stalagmite becomes. And if you're here this morning, and you have never come to know the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, you've never committed yourself to follow Christ, you're allowing your sin and unbelief to drip and drip and drip. And it's not making you softer to the things of God. It's making you harder to the things of God. And so I call upon you, come to Christ today. He will receive you. You'll know His love and forgiveness, but come today. Repent of your sin. Call out to the Lord to save you. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior and you'll know the joy and the purpose and the meaning of of forgiveness and, and a life that can be invested for eternal good. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Paul said of some in the area of Rome, he said, but there were some sinners there that because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, they were storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. One of the greatest promises of all of Scripture is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish like these people are going to perish, but have eternal life. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. He's promised to receive you, to forgive you, and to give you the greatest gift of all everlasting life. Come to Christ. Those who come to Christ obviously will not suffer this doom that these people sadly will receive. In verse 12, Paul then adds that uh, they will believe what is false. Those who have already hardened themselves, now they're being sent a deluding influence from God through whatever means God so ordains to do it. So that they will believe what is false. So they're, they're committed to their unbelief. They're committed to the lie. Even at a deeper level because of this judgment from God. And then in verse 12. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth. But took pleasure in wickedness. So now this is the purpose. Is that they might ultimately be judged for their unbelief. Those who delight and take pleasure in wickedness. So again, Paul kind of lays the blame at their feet. They're going to be judged. Why? Because they didn't believe the truth. Because they took pleasure in wickedness. So here you kind of have an order of events that uh, I think you can probably lay out. This is the way I would put the whole passage together is you start with uh, the, the inner core spiritual condition. So they delighted in wickedness, verse 12. Then they refused to believe the truth because of that. Then Satan deceived them to believe a lie. Then God sent a strong delusion to believe a falsehood. And then they're judged and they perish. And that's kind of the progression of those who take the mark of the beast and become followers of the Antichrist. There's a huge irony in here to me in the passage because God is using Satan and the Antichrist and his followers to carry out his own holy and righteous purpose and judging unbelief. Yet Satan and the man of lawlessness, from their perspective, they're acting in defiance of God. But in the end, their rebellion is bringing about the purpose of God their own destruction according to God's will. From the Antichrist's perspective, he aims to rule the world, oppress the church, exalt himself as a monarch of the, of the earth, as, as God Himself. But from God's perspective, which is sovereign and all-controlling, the Antichrist is merely a tool of bringing judgment upon the non-elect who harden their own hearts, stir up their sin nature, are deceived, and therefore prepared justly and righteously to be judged. So the Antichrist is actually fulfilling the purpose and plan of God in preparing the wicked for being judged. So God is using the Antichrist's deceptions to bring judgment upon unbelievers before their final judgment. So the irony is, in the mind of the Antichrist, he actually thinks he's going to prevail but in the in the end he's ultimately just accomplishing God's sovereign's uh, purpose and will I do want to say something about so who is this Antichrist who's it going to be and uh, interesting study if you read all the different guesses throughout church history the reformers and the Puritans unanimously believe that it would be the Pope it's going to be the Antichrist the papacy was the seat of the Antichrist, and, uh, and that was their conviction. Now that's not to say, understand me, I'm not saying that there can't be some believers in the Roman Catholic Church, but the theological statements of the church and those who believe them are certainly apostate. Uh, the Reformers and the Puritans held to the historicist view of Revelation. So, Revelation's beast and the Babylonian harlot in the book of Revelation, they identified as the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy, respectively. The adultery of the harlot in the book of Revelation with the kings of the earth is the Roman Catholic's control over France and Spain and Italy, all of those countries, and even England to a certain extent, brought a a huge persecution against the church, killing the reformers, the Puritans, in many ways persecuting them with the power of the sword of the civil government. Because the Pope back in those days basically controlled the kings of those countries. So he could use the power of the sword of civil government to slaughter believers, the church, the reformers. So consistently that was their, that was their conviction. The man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 who sets himself up in the temple of God, well that's the papacy in their view. And again, this is perfectly understandable because the Pope was claiming divine rights and privileges that belong to God alone. Church grants him those titles and privileges. The Pope is called our Lord God the Pope. He's called Holy Father. He's referred to as another God on earth. He's called the dominion of God and the Pope is one and the same. This is in uh, the the, uh, official Catholic theological writings. He's called the vicar of Christ. Vicar means he who stands in the place of Christ. And even the catechism of the Catholic Church, put out in 1992, said the Roman pontiff or pope and the bishops are endowed with the authority of Christ that the pope possesses infallibility that he has full, supreme, universal power over the church. And because the Pope possessed incredible ecclesiastical authority and civil authority over the civil governments of those nations that he, he controlled, he brought out about a horrendous persecution on the church and death to many of the believers for their faith in the gospel. So you can definitely see why in their day and age, uh, the Antichrist, a man of lawlessness, was identified with the Pope. In evaluating that, there's a couple of things we have to consider. Obviously, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church don't have the authority in our world that they did back in those days. They certainly don't have the, the civil power like uh, they did when they kind of controlled the kings of France and spain and and Italy, so you have to you you have to reckon that now whether whether the pope is still going to be the antichrist certainly could be i'm'm I'm, I'm just throwing out some things you have to consider many uh, so so the pope doesn't have the authority within the church today as he used to do, and he's certainly not within civil governments today like he used to Uh, many conservative catholics are quite upset with the pope not only for his marxist beliefs but also because he recently uh, came to prove that catholic priests can bless same-sex couples so there's many within the church that do not like that rightfully so But also, they don't have the civil, the popes don't have the civil authority right now to engage in the type of use of the sword to judge and punish uh, the church as they did. Also, if you throw in John's teaching about the Antichrist who will deny Christ and the Father, and he will deny that Christ came in the flesh, that's quite a departure from accepted Catholic theology. Uh, so was Paul, was John describing the Antichrist only in his day and age, or is that more of a permanent description of the Antichrist? Kind of have to wrestle through that. But in light of the many serious errors in the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, such as sola fides, a truth we embrace and love, that you're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, the church says that view is anathema. So they they are obviously an apostate church from their theological convictions, The Council of Trent, and also what's been repeated in the Catechism. Their view on transubstantiation, again, totally unbiblical. Their view of the divine authority with the Pope, totally unbiblical. So, so the issue is here, if the Antichrist is going to bring about a great apostasy within the church, the Roman Catholic Church, according to its official writings, is not the church. It's already an apostasy. So how is he going to bring about an apostasy in an institution that's already apostate? So it makes you think that the Antichrist is going to have a great Influence in the protestant religion where many fake believers will apostatize and follow the antichrist just things to you know to work through when we're trying to think about who the antichrist is going to be so i don't know i think we just have to keep our eyes open maybe a future pope but a lot of things would have to change for those uh uh, ducks to get in line, if you will. But it's uh it's a challenge. But we need to be observant and keep the scriptures in mind and what they tell us about uh the Antichrist. In conclusion, a couple of things just to um, keep in mind. <clears throat> as we as we think about these serious uh, future events, as I understand them to be future and the persecution, and the apostasy, and the man of lawlessness, these things that have to take place before the second coming of Christ, we need to not focus on the persecution, but focus on the parousia, or the coming of Christ. That's the word for the coming of Christ. Don't focus on the coming persecution so we're full of anxiety and fear. The Lord doesn't want us to have that attitude. Because we win in the end. Don't focus on the persecution or the suffering. But focus on the coming of Christ. The parousia. This is something that will bring honor and glory uh, to our Lord. Notice in verse 8 and 12. The Lord is going to slay the man of lawlessness with his breath. And bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. In verse 12. The man of lawlessness and all the people who follow him will be judged. So you don't fear them. Christ says, don't fear those who can kill your body, but fear him who can cast your body and soul into hell. Fear God. Don't fear men. So don't focus on the persecution. Focus on the coming of Christ, the parousia. Peter said, therefore, fix your minds... Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where we need to fix our hope. So, on the grace brought to us. The glory, the transformation, the new body, the new heavens and the new earth. Being with Christ forever. That's our hope. That's where we want to fix our, our minds on. And then lastly... Don't focus on the fake, but focus on the genuine. Don't focus on the fake, the Antichrist, the counterfeit Messiah, Savior, King, Peace Bringer. Don't focus on the fake. We need to be aware, we need to be watchful. I'm not saying we don't do that, we are. don't get preoccupied. Who's the Antichrist? And every day day you open up your newspaper and you're trying to see who's going to be the next Antichrist. Uh, Don't focus on the fake, but focus on the genuine. And it's a popular illustration, but I think it's true, and it's used often. But I do believe it's true that federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. Right. Rather, they study the genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing, and then when they see bogus money, they can recognize it. I think that's good wisdom. Don't get so preoccupied with who's the Antichrist. You know what's he going to look like? This, that, and the other. Just focus on Christ. Love him. Follow Him. Study and learn about Him. And whenever that person appears, it's going to be obvious uh, to those who, who walk with the Lord. Knowing Christ is the key to avoiding the apostasy that is to come. And even though we may not understand the mystery of God's ways, sending delusion, all this kind of stuff, or the mystery of lawlessness... But what we do need to understand and know is Christ. So if we walk with Christ, if we stay in His Word, if we stay close to the Savior, that's our safety. That's our protection. Follow Christ. Focus on Christ. Stay in the Word of God, which teaches us about the glory of Christ. And as we walk with Him, then we'll be protected. God will persevere through us, no matter what we have to face in the future. The key is focus on Christ. And with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you Lord again for the opportunity to study this uh, difficult passage, a lot of theological challenges here as well, Lord. but we pray that uh, we have understood it correctly. And if not, Lord, give more light, more illumination to better understand it. But Father, we we pray that most of all, uh, not knowing in what day we live in, whether we will be alive when these final events come to pass or not, but Lord, really in one way that shouldn't matter. We need to be watching and looking for your return. We need to be living for You today. We need to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth today. We need to be faithful to You. We just need to focus on You. So Father, by Your Spirit, help us to do that. This world is such an entanglement to our mind and our heart. It just wants to tie us up in knots and distract us and and, uh, render us useless to the kingdom of God. So Lord, by Your Spirit, just renew the Word of God within us. And most importantly, as the Word shines its light upon Christ, renew the glory of Christ in our hearts. And we pray this in His name. Amen.